Okay, good morning, Reach. Just get all set here. Uh, it's always good to see you again. Um, glad to be back with you. I'm really happy, you know, just thankful for this summer where Church 21 and Reach Montreal have been able to partner together. You've gotten to meet some of my friends in the preaching rotation, and they've gotten to know some of you as well. So I enjoy just collaborating a lot more, especially on mission here in the West Island. Um, God has placed us here in this unique place at this unique time for his purpose, for his glory. And so that's what we're about today. We've been going through the, this whole series in the book of Mark. Today we're going to be in chapter 6. We're going to cover verses 1 through 30, so it's a big chunk of scripture. But in this passage, there are three stories, three examples of um, how we are sent out on God's mission and how following Jesus has a cost in life. And so we're going to be looking at that cost in life for following Jesus and that cost to following Jesus. And uh, yeah, so on that subject, I was reflecting, what are, the, what are some of the costs that we face in life? Thinking about even having buyer's remorse. Buyer's remorse is this thing where you, you regret a purchase that you made at some point. I don't know if you've experienced that recently, um, where you've been shocked kind of by the upfront cost of something. I remember, uh, you know, personally, when, when you're shopping for a car, this is one of those moments. My first few cars, I just bought used cars with cash up front, but I remember getting married, going with my wife to get a car at a used car dealership, sitting in that dealership just in shock at the difference between the final price after adding this and that and the other compared to the sticker price that I saw in the parking lot. You know, this is that kind of thing that can, you know, some people could just walk away. You know, there are things in life where we see that cost up front. We, we start planning a wedding and it's like, oh, this every chair costs an extra $4. That's going to add up after 400 You know, all, all these kinds of things, the, the shock value of these price. But then there's also some things in life where it's not just the upfront cost that can shock us, but the hidden costs afterward, the ongoing costs of maintaining something like a home or a pool or a, a pet or a boat. We take on these things and we realize this is a larger cost than I anticipated. I didn't know it would cost me this much to get married and then it cost me this much being married. You know, there are ongoing things like this. I was reminded of this just in my recent vacation a few weeks ago. My family went to the States to go to the beaches with our family and me just with these idealistic dreams of what vacation could look like for me packed these books I wanted to read and these art supplies. I could have some time to myself. But of course, a family of three kids, that vision is quickly shattered just with reality. There's a cost to having kids and it costs my own personal time that I might otherwise spend sitting in a chair on the beach reading. Um, so there are costs in life, things like this. And so sometimes in our relationship with Jesus, there is a cost up front, a cost proposition to following Jesus that we must understand, but there's also a cost in following Jesus, in a life spent following him. If we don't anticipate the costs of following Jesus, then we'll be like me just packing for that trip and, and we'll think of a life with Jesus in these idealistic, with an idealistic kind of um, idea, you know, that we'll just uh, follow Jesus, it'll be a day at the beach and you know, we'll just wait for the Holy Spirit to make me a better version of myself. 
um, while I live my best life now, and it'll just be easy. But today's passage shows us that there are costs to following Jesus, and there are costs for following Jesus. But what I want us to see is that the hope of eternal life is worth any cost that we might face in this life. The hope of eternal life found in Jesus is worth any cost that we might encounter in this life, and we will. We will encounter these costs. So what I mean by the cost to follow Jesus and the cost for following Jesus, we'll see in these three stories that there are three costs in order to follow Jesus. It will cost us these three things. And then there are three costs for following Jesus, and we'll see what those are through these passages as well. So let me pray real quick for me and for us as we start in that. Jesus, I thank you for your faithfulness to us, the all-surpassing value of your love and grace towards us, that we can have hope and assurance of eternal life in you, and that that hope of eternal life is worth any cost that we might face, because really you've paid every cost, Jesus, and more than we could pay. And uh, so help us to respond to you with open hearts and open ears to hear your word today. Um, Lord, that you would bless the meditations of my heart and the, oh, the words of my mouth as we read your word. Amen. So in Mark chapter 6, I'll start off with verses 1 through 6. It says that Jesus went from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So there's kind of a parallel structure in the three passages that we're going to look at today where we see the, the mission of the gospel. Just to define that a little bit, the gospel is the message, the, the message of good news, of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand, that the hope of eternal life is before you through Jesus. And so the mission of the gospel is to saturate the world with God's glory, and God is glorified through this message of good news. And so that mission to saturate the world with his glory goes forth um, with the kingdom of God being declared in word and being demonstrated in deed. So this message of the gospel and this mission of the gospel exists in word and in deed. And we're gonna see what that mission looks like throughout these three passages. We see that here starting off in the first part of chapter six, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So this is Jesus' mission. He's always on the move. He spends time in a place teaching the gospel, 
and he comes to this place. He happens to come to his hometown in this situation with a gospel message. And so he's on mission to reach these people with the gospel. It's a gospel, he, he declares the gospel in word. Verse two says, on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. So this is a mission that is tied to a message. Um, he teaches in the synagogue. And in verse six, it says, he went about the villages teaching. And the people, you know, to teach the word of God to the hearers of God's word is this ministry of, it's a prophetic ministry to proclaim the word of God and to speak with the voice of God is a prophetic ministry. And Jesus says, identifies with that by saying that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. So this is a message. He carries a message of the gospel with him. But we also see that the gospel is demonstrated in works as well. Not just words, but in works. And uh, verse 2 shows us that many who heard uh, Jesus, they were astonished. This is one of the works that occurred was that they were astonished by his teaching, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? This is a supernatural work of wisdom that is flowing through Jesus. And they say, how are such mighty works done by his hands? And then verse five says that he could actually do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them. But healing the sick, laying his hands on these few people and healing the sick is also a demonstration of the gospel of God, that the kingdom of God has, is at hand, that salvation is before you that the power of God is unleashed in our world, undoing the brokenness of sin. So this is a good news in the demonstration of these mighty works. So we see that the gospel is um, declared in word and demonstrated in works, but despite the divine evidence, our sinful nature is offended by the power of the gospel. It says here in verse three, that the people said, is not, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And it says, they took offense at him. The people, despite these divine words and these divine miracles, took offense at Jesus because of his seemingly common family, his common origins, his his humble beginnings. Verses five to six said that he could do no mighty work there and that he marveled because of their unbelief. They could not believe Jesus. There was something in the way of believing in Jesus. So this unbelief is evidenced by their pride, the pride of these people who had known Jesus' family since his youth shows us that there is a steep cost to following Jesus. And that cost is pride. They had a low estimation of Jesus' divinity because they were so attached to his humanity. They could not see past his humanity to see his divinity. Or rather, instead, in the case of pride, they really would maintain their high self-esteem by judging and discrediting his divinity in their own eyes. And because of their lack of faith, he could do no mighty work there. But this is true for us too. Often our own sinful nature is offended by the power of the gospel. 
we are prone to judge and discredit the words and work of God in our life too. Where God would be ready to act in our life, we, we, we approach him from our judgment throne and discredit and judge things that we would, would, would cast in under a low estimation of who he is. You know, this can even be how in the judgment seat of our mind, we judge Christianity to be even a naive sense of hope, some would say, or a crutch for weak people to endure and cope with hard things in life. So the world around us can even judge and discredit the work of God because of the humility of the gospel and just the, the humility of a God who would become man, incarnate, walk the earth and die on a cross. But 1 Corinthians says this. Paul writes this. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is a stumbling block to the Jews and this is folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Then he goes on and says, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. This is a strategic mission of God to approach the world, make his appeal to the world through us and through Christ incarnated and crucified. This is God's approach to the world and for, for the world it's foolish but for those who are called, who believe it is God's wisdom. Jesus also said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And he's teaching his disciples something when he says this. There's a cost to following Jesus, but there's also a cost for following Jesus. There will be family, friends, and neighbors who deny the work of God in and through your life too. Because of their familiarity, with your life work. They will discredit God because of what they have seen in your life. They'll discredit the work of God because they've seen our own, our own shortcomings. But if the hope of eternal life is truly worth any cost in this life, then we can lose honor with people because we have gained honor with God. We can face losing honor among our friends, our family, our coworkers. We can face that because the hope of the gospel is truly worth any cost. It's not a perfect, problem-free life that will draw your friends, your family to the gospel. It's not that. It's a life dependent on the gospel that will draw our friends and our family and our neighbors to the gospel. It's not our strength that will show the gospel. It's our weakness that will show off the gospel because God is glorified in our weakness because it's his strength that is glorified. You cannot change your past. 
We cannot change our past, but we can still live today and tomorrow with the hope of the gospel. One of my favorite quotes by Pastor Jeff Vanderstelt is to live your life in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. This can be what marks our life today, is to live in a way that people just have to turn and look and ask, why do you live so differently than the rest of the world? What is it about the hope that is in you? By following Jesus, we have received an honor before God that we could never achieve on our own, but it has been given to us by grace. So now that honor can never be taken away. It doesn't matter if we lose honor with our family, friends, and neighbors. We can still live and proclaim the reason for the hope that is in us. So there's a cost to following Jesus, laying down our pride, and there's a cost for following Jesus, laying down our honor. In this next passage, we're gonna see how this continues, this mission of the gospel continues through the apostles as they are sent out by Jesus in verses seven through 13. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And then he said to them, whenever you enter a house, Stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So in this parallel kind of structure, we see that this gospel mission is, is going forth as Jesus calls the 12 and began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority. This is the, the mission of God continuing to saturate the world with his glory by proclaiming the gospel in word and deed. It's a message, it's a, it's a message of the word. We see here in verse 11, Jesus is telling them that if anyone will not receive you and they will not listen to you. If they will not hear the message that you have to speak, here is what you do. In verse 12, it says that they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. So we do see, again, that this is a message to proclaim. This is a message to declare in word. And they go out and to proclaim this. But it's also demonstrated in their works. It says that he gave them authority over unclean spirits. These signs were accompanying the message that God's kingdom has arrived. We prove it by declaring and demonstrating that authority by casting out these unclean spirits. It says that they um, proclaimed that people should repent and that they cast out many demons, anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So the sign of, of healing these people was also a sign of the spiritual healing that Jesus was bringing as the kingdom of God comes to town, as um, eternal life, the hope of eternal life is made present before you, is made a reality not just in the afterlife, but in today's life through healing and freedom. But again, despite the divine evidence of the apostles, our sinful nature finds no hospitality for the gospel. Jesus anticipates the cost that they will face when they do not receive you, when they do not listen to you. He tells them what to do. Our sinful nature has no hospitality for the gospel. Why? Because only sinners need to repent. 
Jesus came to save sinners, not the righteous. So one of the costs of following Jesus, or one of the costs in order to follow Jesus, is that we lay aside our own religious efforts, our own religious work. What Mark doesn't include here in this story that we know from the other uh, Gospels, we, we know in the Gospel, in the New Testament, we have the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and some of them um, tell the same stories, but with different details. And what we see in the other Gospels is that these apostles were sent out not in the Gentile or Samaritan areas, but into the Jewish areas to proclaim this gospel. And of course, in, in, in a strong religious culture, you're gonna be met with this opposition or this cost of receiving grace by laying down the cost of our religion. Not that they're calling them to turn from Judaism, to turn and abandon God's law, but to find the fulfillment of God's law in the person of Jesus, to find their hope of salvation, not in their own works, but in the perfect life of Jesus. We know that while some of God's people, God's faithful people following his Torah would look in the mirror of God's law and they would see their sin and they would confess their need for a savior. We also know that we in our sinful nature are prone to measure ourselves favorably by the ruler of God's law by the rule of God's law and find no need to call upon a savior. This is what um, our sinful nature bolstered by religious efforts does to the gospel. We find no hospitality for grace. Like the men and women of this town, we too are faced with a steep cost to lay down our religion, to lay down our sinful nature that is prone to just try harder and do our best and to rest on our own works for our assurance of salvation. But we cannot hold on to our religious effort and at the same time, hold on to grace. We have to give up all of our religious work to accept all of Jesus's perfect obedience. Paul knew this the best. As a religious leader and law keeper in Judaism, Paul later encountered Jesus and laid aside his religious works for the sake of the gospel. Paul says this in Philippians chapter three. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He summarizes this a little bit in, in Galatians when he writes that we know that a person is not, um, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified 
our religious efforts will not suffice. They are not good enough. So why did these apostles go uh, to a religious town of God's people who are following God's law saying to repent? Because we need to repent from our sin and we also need to turn from our own religious efforts and turn to grace in Christ, and to turn to Christ through faith and, and receive his grace. But there's also a cost, not just this cost to follow Jesus, but a cost for following Jesus. Um, he knows that they won't always be received. They won't always be listened to. He says, when you go out, you're gonna find hospitality in some of these homes, but you cannot always count on that. And there are times for you and I where we, because of our faith in Christ and because of the call to repentance that we carry with us in the hope of salvation, we will not be received in this world. We will not be heard. We will not be listened to in this world at times. Our hope and our faith in the gospel will not be heard in workplace conversations. Our hope in the gospel will not be received in academic essays and classroom conversations. Our message will not always be welcomed and received. And because of that, we may face losing hospitality, comfort, and status in this life. We may be blocked or unfriended on social media because of our faith and beliefs. But we have a Father in heaven who is with us, who sees us, knows us, and hears us. So we can face losing hospitality on earth because we have a home in heaven. Jesus anticipates this, and it's amazing to me. What stood out to me um, kind of the most in this passage is just the fact that Jesus goes into detail about how to shake the dust off of your feet. Jesus, knowing that they're going to um, run into this cost of following him, he says, here's what to do. The dust that's on your sandals, take off your, your sandals and shake off the dust as a testimony against them. The fact that the creator of the universe would think, here's what to do when people don't receive you. Take the dust on your sandals and shake it off. What value or significance does dust have in our world? It has no significance. But to God, he can make even the most insignificant thing a witness and tool for his purpose and his power. So you and I, you know, that dust is insignificant apart from the fact that it rests on the feet of the apostles. Because to Jesus, those apostles carry with them his very presence. And their presence demands a response to the gospel. There's a weightiness in the message that they carry. And even the dust on their feet will be a witness. So, guys, you and I, too, look, we may be... Um, poor in this life, but we will be rich in the next. We might not be received here on earth, but we will be received in heaven. And even the things that we leave behind will be a witness to our neighbors, to our colleagues, to our coworkers of what is truly valuable, the message of the hope of eternal life in Christ. Finally, let's look at this um, third passage. In, uh, this is the 
kind of the bulk of the text here. It's this long story about John the Baptist and King Herod Antipas. From verse 14, I'll read on. King Herod heard of it, heard of uh, Jesus' fame, for Jesus' name had become known. And some people said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Okay, Herod has heard about all these miraculous works, and some say it's because John the Baptist has been raised. Other people say, well, it's Elijah. Other people say he's a prophet like the one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard these things, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So, John, uh, so Herod is hearing these things, and people are trying to draw a, a conclusion. What is this supernatural work that's happening? And, and Herod kind of jumps to this conclusion, it must be John. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised, and these miraculous powers are coming after me. And so he says... Um, in verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he, uh, Herod, had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias, she had a grudge against him, against John, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So here we see, just to unpack this a little bit, because it's kind of confusing, is you've got this uh, Philip um, married to Herodias, but uh, Herodias' half-brother Herod is also married to Herodias. So you've got these two brothers with one wife, and John saying, this is not lawful. This is not lawful to God's standards. And John speaks up against this. Um, and because of this, Herodias has a grudge against him. And because of this, Herod uh, seizes him, puts him in prison. Even though you can see he kind of tries to keep him safe. Um, he likes to listen to what John has to say, but he keeps him in prison. It's this kind of odd story that's added in here. And then we continue even further, starting with verse 21 that finally an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, well, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist... And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on the platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So here in chapter 6, it kind of stood out to me, just this heavy sense that we've, in these first six chapters of Mark, 
we've seen the, the bright light of John's life, the vibrant life of John, a voice in the wilderness. From the very first chapter we started in, we saw that John came as this prophetic voice in the wilderness, a light in the darkness. And six chapters later, we see the end of his life, beheaded in a prison under King Herod. Makes me think over to the accounts in Luke of how we see God's purpose for John's life. When Zechariah the priest was serving in the temple, an angel of the Lord came and told Zechariah, you're gonna have a son and his name will be John. And this is what he says. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. It says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And this father, Zechariah, later on, when he's seeing his son firstborn, for the first time, this precious new life. He looks upon his precious son and he speaks prophecy over him, saying this, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear, in holiness and in righteousness before him all our days. And he looks at John, he says, you child will be called the prophet of the most high. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In chapter six, we see that the horn of salvation has been struck down. The light that shined in the darkness has been snuffed out. The voice of one crying in the wilderness has been shut up in the death of John the Baptist. His life was a gospel mission sent to saturate the world with the glory of God, saying that Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He declared the gospel in his word and he never shied away from Herod. He spoke against sin when he saw it, even though it cost him his life. And even when Herod heard John's words, he was intrigued. He was perplexed, but he heard him gladly. John's message was a prophetic message of the kingdom of God at hand and the hope of eternal life come to us, to sinners in the forgiveness of our sins because of the tender mercy of our God. We should repent from sin. 
his message was also a gospel demonstrated in works through the work and witness of John and even his death was a demonstration of the gospel. But despite the divine message and miracles of, of John, our own sinful nature wants to shut up the gospel too. Oh, sorry, did it again. Herod sent and seized John, bound him in the prison. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. The daughter was used by, the, by Herod and Herodias to request his head on a platter. Herod sent the executioner to take John's head. They went and, uh, and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter to give it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother and John's life was taken. And Psalm 116 verse 15 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. But you know, these are really extreme examples. Having somebody arrested and imprisoned and beheaded because of their word against you. But you know what? Similarly, we too um, are prone to maybe read God's word, go to church, hear, hear the sermon. And yet we stay in this zone like Herod of gladly hearing the word of God, being intrigued by the message of the gospel, <laughs> Thanks, Steve. And yet, in our heart, what really moves us, holds us, sways our affections is that sin in our life. We can hear the word and be perplexed by it and not moved by it. We keep the Bible in a corner of our life like Herod kept John in a corner of the cell and we consult him occasionally but at the end of the day, it's us who will make the decision. And just this word decide literally means to cut off, to kill. And we make decisions every day with the word of God. Who will be the king of our heart like we sang today? Who will be the king of our heart? Every time we decide to give precedence and worth and value to some other area of our life, we are killing off, cutting off the word of God from our life. And we are the ones that relegate God's word to a minor uh, voice in our life until eventually we silence it and we kill the voice of God in our life by our own decisions throughout life. So there is a cost to following Jesus. It is laying down our sin. It is deciding to take up God's word and to kill sin in our lives. But there's also a cost for following Jesus in our life. And you and I can be so thankful to, to even read a story like this and be thankful for the freedoms that we have in 21st century Canada, um, the freedom of religion, the freedom of speech. While we have brothers and sisters throughout this world who are suffering, today in other countries who are not free to gather for worship like we are, and in Hebrews 13, 3, the writer says to remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them. And those who are mistreated, since you are also part of the same body. Paul writes in Timothy, 
He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, even for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then Peter says, to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him, to punish those who do evil, to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. We have a hope of eternal life that cannot be taken away so that we can boldly speak against sin in our world and in our culture from the lowest to the highest forms of government, whether under freedom or persecution, all the while praying for our leaders as we should. To wrap this up, why would Jesus, the apostles, and John risk losing their honor, their home, and even their head? Because the hope of eternal life is worth any cost in this life. If eternal life is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it is worth laying down our sin, laying down our pride, laying down our religious efforts to have that eternal life. And it does not just make a difference for tomorrow. It does not just make a difference for eternity, but it makes a difference for today. We need eternal life. We need the rule and reign of Jesus Christ in our lives today by laying down our sin, our pride, and our religious works. Today, I want to remind you that you stand between grace and hope. Paul writes in Titus 2, verses 11 to 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to live godly lives in the present age, waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. So no matter where you are today, no matter what you may risk losing in this life, you stand before, between grace and hope. So you are never without grace and you're never without hope. Last words, verse 30 is a fitting close to this passage because it says, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. They returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. John the Baptist, when he lost his head, returned to the Father's side and told him all that he had done and taught. You and I will one day return to Jesus and tell him all that we have done and taught. But our boast will not be in what we have done and taught, but in what he has done for us. So go in this today. Jesus, thank you for all that you've done for us in your perfect life, your death on the cross for our sins and your resurrection, giving us the hope of eternal life. Lord, um, you have paid every cost that we might face, so we gladly follow you. Help us, Lord, um, to follow you this week. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.